Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today we're talking with Greg Moore, a Betcher Foundation trustee who for two plus decades has been a Coloradan and civic leader. Greg is a storyteller and possesses boundless curiosity, which is fitting for a man who's made his mark in the newspaper industry before launching into some newer ventures where he still uses his writing and critical thinking skills and editorial eye. We're going to talk about all of these things and more. So let's get started. Greg, welcome to the studio. It's great to be here, Katie. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Let's start by hearing about your origin story. Tell us about your childhood growing up in the Midwest, maybe about your family and your home life. What was that like? So I was the the oldest of five kids. I had three sisters behind me. We were like stair steps. And after begging and begging and begging, I finally got a brother when I was 12. So there was (laughs) five of us. My father was a factory worker, worked in steel mills. My mom was a stay-at-home mom who worked like a dog. I mean... Everybody wanted their toast different. Everybody wanted their bacon differently. Everybody wanted their pancakes differently. And she accommodated all of that. But, you know, we had a very disciplined life, I would say. My mom kind of ran the roost. And the one thing I could count on was consistency from morning till night. Uh, We were rule followers as kids. And I can truly say I never had an unsupervised moment, really, outside of school. So, I mean, in a way, I'm a mama's boy. But, you know, I think... One of the great things, my mom is 94 now, still alive, living with one of my sisters, and none of us have ever been in any trouble of any kind, and that's really a credit to her. Wow, absolutely. What was it like growing up with all those kids, too? You know, it was, we did everything together. Yeah. You know, if we watched a concert with the Beatles, the my sisters and I would, you know, take on the personas. I was always Paul. My sister was oldest sister was always John, and the look, my youngest sister would we just give her sticks and she'd beat on the cardboard box and she'd be Ringo. Ringo. <laughs> but we we learned to play games together. We learned to support each other. We learned to fight together. We learned to do everything together. Mm-hmm. And I like to say, you know, I've been negotiating with women my my whole life, and it's been a huge benefit to me. You know, if I wanted to watch Bonanza, I had to figure out a way to give them something that they wanted. And if they wanted to do something, they had to build alliances with me. So it was really fun growing up. And and that's carried on into adulthood for most of us. Where did writing and reporting and journalism enter your frame of reference as something you were, were interested in? Is that something you started or you kind of fell into it? I think I kind of fell into it. I, I really didn't know what journalism was. I, I didn't really know that People like myself, young African-American person, kid, could actually grow up to be a journalist. I had no idea watching television. But what I did like was I love stories. And so I used to watch The Fugitive with my mother. I used to watch soap operas with my mother when I was a kid. We would talk about them like they were real people. And she was a CBS soap opera person. So as the world turned, the edge of night, all of that I grew up with. But I had a deep appreciation of telling stories. And Mm -hmm. And how they could really engross you in the lives of other people have done have done well. And then my mom, like I told you, she was a homemaker. But every once in a while to make money on the side, she would do surveys. And I would go door to door with her 
And we'd knock on doors and ask people questions, public opinion surveys. And so I got really, really good at, you Mm. know, getting them to keep the door open, getting invited into the house, being able to ask questions and all of that mixed in, I think, kind of got me where where I am, where I became a journalist, telling stories and keeping people talking. (laughs) Love that. I want you to share one of the stories that I've appreciated from you over the years is your story about how you got to college. (laughs) And so can you share that with, with everybody about how'd you end up at Ohio Wesleyan? And so, yeah. <laughs> so really quickly. So I was the, the first person in, in my, my family. I mean, literally the first person in the history of our family to, to go to college. And so I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about the process. And I thought that you graduated from high school and took the summer off, maybe had a summer job. And then in September, you would go and apply to whatever college you wanted to go to. And so even though I was an honor student in public high school, I felt like I had it all figured out. And so when they called me to go down to meet with the college recruiters in January of 1972, I was like, I don't need any guidance. I got this, right? And so it wasn't until March when I noticed that my classmates would be opening acceptance letters. I was like, when did you guys do that? And they were like, you remember when Ms. Watson asked you to come down to meet with the recruiters and you said, I didn't need any guidance? That's when we did this. Panicked, went to a counselor and said, look, I really screwed up. My mom's going to kill me if I don't go to college. <laughs> You've got to help me. She's like, it's kind of late, but let me see what I can do. She helped me fill out the applications and put all my financial information together. She picked up the telephone and she called a guy that she knew who was the assistant admissions director at Ohio Wesleyan and said, I got a great kid here. He kind of messed up, but I think you'll like it if you give him a chance. I go down, I visit the campus. Even though they closed admissions, they made a spot for me and the rest is history. I, I like to say that I didn't choose Ohio Wesleyan. Ohio Wesleyan chose me. And it's just, I'm I'm super grateful and it's really informed almost everything that I've done since. Love it. And you just did like the keynote, didn't you, for for graduation or (laughs) something? Yeah, I've done uh, two. Uh I've done two commencements. And when the president left after a 15-year tenure, Uh I did an onstage interview with him. Awesome. Exit interview. Yeah. That's awesome. That's pretty cool, right? (laughs) So you're there there on campus. And I, I remember also that you started the student newspaper. You co-founded it. One of them, yeah. yeah. So what, why did you do that? What was the impact of that publication is sort of in this career that you've had? Why was it so important to you at that time and so, today? Almost everything that happens to you happens for personal reason, right? So I was really upset because, you know, a story that I had written for the transcript, which was the official student newspaper, they really marked it up and they changed it and they put it in the back of the newspaper. And I was really upset. And I remember going to the professor who was our advisor saying, they did me wrong. And he said, yeah, I think they did do you wrong. But then in addition to that, I found myself and some of my other African-American classmates complaining that the student paper wasn't covering issues that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And rather than complain, I've always felt, rather than complain, do something. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to start our own newspaper and we called it The Witness. And a bunch of us, every two weeks, would get into this space, like like sort of where we are, with typewriters and all of this kind of stuff. And we would type out our stories and, you know, into columns on a 8 by 11 paper, a piece of paper. And, you know, we put out a 20-page issue and we would sell it on campus. And my faculty advisor, he would go through and critique the newspaper for us uh, mm. for years. And it, one of the things I'm most proud of It was a grassroots type of journalism enterprise. And 
it lasted for like 15 years after I graduated. Like lots of people know what it is. So it became part of the fabric of Ohio West then. It became uh, something that was really respected. And so I'm super proud of it, of course. And the, the thing that I take away from it is, you know, you can make a difference. And as an individual, you can make a difference. Don't sit on the sidelines complaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, get up and do what you think needs to be done if you think there's a need. And that's always been something that I've kept with me. Love that. Love that. So you graduate from college, yeah. your career launches. It's the mid-1970s, and some might say the maybe the golden age of journalism. So competing newspapers in nearly every market with the public getting their information from their morning paper. What do you remember most about that era? That's a great question, Katie. What I remember from that era is journalists were like the most important people around. Mm. Like they were the center of attention at dinner parties. Everybody wanted to know what you thought because you had access to all the information that they didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was easy to dominate, you know, social situations and, and and that kind of thing. And it was good. Like, people actually trusted. They respected what, what you had to say. So that was nice from a personal standpoint. But I think from a journalistic standpoint, you know, we had the resources to do really important stories. And when I came up in the business, I came up in 1974. That was my very first journalism job. And I remember... They rolled the televisions into the newsroom and we watched Richard Nixon resign, get on the plane and wave goodbye. And I turned to uh, one of the professionals there. I was a 19-year-old intern. I was like, that's what I want to do. That's Mm. what I want to be. You know, that's how you change the world. And you don't have to be a lawyer or a politician to have that kind of impact. That's what I want to do. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And for most of the 40 years that I was in journalism, it was it was truly the golden age. I mean, you know, we were able to improve situations and change people's lives and people got their news from newspapers. They respected and trusted them. So it was the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. And I loved it mostly for most of that time. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that journey specifically from a leadership perspective, right? You're coming in, you're a reporter, and then you continue to grow as a leader in a number of different places. So tell us about what you were doing and and where you were. So, you know, when I I actually have had a, you know, great mentors, women. My first city editor was a woman. I learned a lot about management style and inclusion and things of that nature. I worked for a few uh, African-American editors. So I've had a range of mentors uh, that have really sort of shaped my philosophy of of leadership, uh, which is to be collaborative, to be inclusive, to listen, that sometimes your best ideas come from letting people sort of unload Mm -hmm. and then sort of taking, you know, the the things that they and others offer and let's figure out a way to move forward together. But my leadership journey started out, I was a union activist and I was in charge of keeping our our employees together so that they could strike at a moment's notice if we didn't get an agreement with management of the plane dealer in Cleveland, Ohio. At the last minute, we averted the strike. But a week later, management came to me and said, hey, we would like you to be a part of our team. Hmm. So I became an editor when I was 28 years old. I had barely finished a half decade as a reporter. But they, someone saw that leadership ability in me to sort of keep people together during a really strenuous time and decided they wanted me on that team. Years later, I learned that most of the top editors at that newspaper were actually plucked from the union because they had the 
respect of the workers and the people on the floor and that kind of thing. So it wasn't wholly unusual that they picked me, but that's how I got started. And then I just, you know, I just sort of latched on to people who had the kind of skills and the success that I wanted for myself. And they were really gracious enough to share their experiences with me. And I'm the kind of person who learns vicariously. I mean, I don't have to be a heroin addict to understand what it means to be one. And I'm a really good listener. I ask good questions. And so, you know, pulling the best from people that I saw and respected and admired, you know, gave me a store of knowledge where as I moved through the leadership transition at different places, very little surprised me over the years. And that's been the benefit of, you know, sitting at the knee of some really, really good men and women who knew a lot and shared a lot with me. Awesome. And you ended up in Denver from the Boston Globe, yeah. right, in the early 2000s. And I don't know if you had been to Colorado before or if this was a place that you were hoping to get to. I'd love to hear about that story about how you came to Denver and Colorado at the time. You'd grown <laughs> up in the Midwest, of course, right. but probably a shift from Boston. What was yeah. what was different? What was new? So, uh, so a lot of questions in there. But the way I got here was my wife, now my wife. She and I had just started dating in Boston, and all of a sudden, she got transferred to Colorado mm. to work for Stars. And I used to come out a lot to visit her, and, and, and the situation in Denver was very similar to what I experienced in Boston. We had a tabloid in Boston, which was the Boston Herald. I was at the Boston Globe. And here we had the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. And so I, I used to you know, sit around and read both newspapers and, and try to imagine what would I do if I was running the post. And so when I finally got that opportunity, I had already played out scenarios in my head. But this is so interesting. I had gone to a journalism seminar in Florida and the one person I was attracted to, John Temple, who turned out to be the editor of the Rocky Mountain News. And we had drinks together. We had breakfast one morning. And I, I wasn't even thinking of coming to Denver at that time. I just liked talking to the guy. He he was engaging and all of that. And so when the opportunity came to to run the Denver Post, I was like, uh, like nothing more than compete than to compete head to head with that guy, John Temple. And so that was just an added benefit for coming here. But I had kind of run through scenarios. I really liked the mountains and I enjoyed I enjoyed what Denver had to offer in terms of climate and people. That's great. Yeah, that was a lot of questions, and you picked them all apart. <laughs> You're a veteran at this. Very intimidating. But I want to hear more about being the editor-in-chief of the Denver Post. It seems like that would be a big responsibility, a lot of things to juggle. I'm curious about what your typical day would be. What would that be like? And maybe you were making decisions all day long. I don't know. That seems like a yeah, lot. So my typical day is I would... You know, I get up around six o'clock, I'd watch the television news, I'd get a phone call from my overnight editor just giving me a quick rundown of what had happened since I had gone to bed and when I woke up, generally speaking. Drop my kids off at school. Uh, we'd have our first meeting, planning meeting of the day at 9.30. Uh, then I'd spend the next hour and a half basically meeting with different department heads, finding out what their you know long-term plans are, any problems any big issues that I need to know about. Then I'd go to lunch for about an hour, hour and a half, maybe two. And then we'd have another meeting at 3.30, which would be our production meeting, where we would actually finalize what's going to be on the front page and what photos we're going to select and later, you know, what stories would have what position on our digital platform. 
And then from about five o'clock until nine o'clock at night, I spent my time reading stories. And, and basically my philosophy was, I don't want to be in a position of complaining the next morning about things I could have fixed the night before. And so every story on every section front, any major story that I thought had implications for the post, I read from beginning to end mm. and gave my feedback that night. So pre-publication, I, I was totally into that. I never sat around the next day saying, I wish we had done this. I wish we had done that. If I didn't like something, I'd just take responsibility for not fixing it the night before. But everybody knew that I was paying attention to everything. And I, I do think it sort of raised the bar there because the boss was paying attention to everything, whether you worked in sports or whether you worked in business or features. I was reading our work. I was you know, making sure I understood who was doing what and make sure I was in a position to praise people when they did well. Was, you know, That was very important to me, too. Wow. And during the time at the Post, that was a huge change in the industry, Yeah, right? Uh, things were shifting dramatically. The internet enters yeah. and becomes a platform for people getting information. There's the two major newspapers, Rocky Mountain News right. closes. I'm, I'm just curious, talk yeah. about during that time, what that was like for you as a leader. You know, um, during that time, it was super challenging for us, right? The advertising model had changed. There was less money. You know, budgets were being cut. But but it was also a time of super creativity for those of us who were still here. Like, I think we became better managers. We became, you know, better stewards of our resources. Like, we were just, instead of throwing everything at anything, we were really being deliberate about what we covered and how much time we spent and what the mix was that we were presenting our readers. And... You know, when times get tough, sometimes that's when you do your best work. And I actually believe that the period between, at least for me and for most of my team, between 2009 and 2014, we did some of our best work. And that happens to coincide with the time we were winning Pulitzer Prizes, where we won four consecutive Pulitzers between 2009 and 2012. So it was a really good period, even though it was very challenging it was a period where I think we had a burst of creativity, and I think we probably served our readers about as well as, as we could. The last thing I would just say about the Rocky, because we were in a very competitive situation, but the day that the Rocky closed in February of 2009 was one of the worst days ever. I mean, these were people that we knew. They were a floor or two below us. Some of them were married to people in our newsroom. I mean, that day, the city lost 250 journalists. And just like that, the landscape was different. And so it was a really, really, really sad day. And I think it really forced those of us who were left at the post to really understand that we had an even increased responsibility to the citizens of Denver and Colorado to do the very best we could every day. And that's what, that's what we did. Awesome. So you retire from the post in 2016. Tell us what you've been up to, including you've got a new venture you've just launched, right? Cloudify. Yeah, yeah Cloudify. So tell us what you've been up to. So mostly of what I was up to was being a better father, yeah. hanging out with my daughters and going to their games and going to their plays and taking them on trips and stuff like that, which was a really, really great thing just to reconnect with my family. The other thing that I did was I got more involved in the nonprofit world. Because as a journalist for all those years, you know, I couldn't join any organizations. I couldn't be on any boards because we covered those things. It was a conflict of interest. 
So I was able to sort of reclaim my citizenship. And I really, mm-hmm. I really liked that. And then, you know, I worked for a company sort of helping executives write thought leadership pieces. It was called the Expert Press. I was a partner in that for like six and a half years. And then in May, decided that I wanted to strike out on my own and do it the way I wanted to do it and maybe add in some other things that, you know, I, I'm particularly well suited to do. And so a partner and I, we founded a company called Cloudify, K-L-O-W-T-I-F-Y. We do thought leadership. We do social media management. We do uh, strategic communications work. We help you work on your Wikipedia pages, believe it or not. There's a huge need out there. Like not everybody has a Wikipedia page. Not everybody can get one. And we've learned a lot about that. And so we've been in business for about five months and things are starting to click for us. And it's been, it's really great to work that hard for yourself, but also to have a little bit of time too to reflect and think and contribute in other ways with nonprofit boards that are doing really great work. So that's what I do. Well, we appreciate you sharing your talents and your heart with us at the Betcher Foundation. And I think one of the things that I appreciate most about you as a trustee is your insatiable curiosity. Greg Moore is never afraid to ask a question. And I love that. And I'm curious about where does that curiosity come from? Is that part of that? Was that nature or nurture? I think it was I think it was nurture. Right. I think by nature, most journalists, believe it or not, are introverted. Mm -hmm. Okay, And being a journalist gives you the permission to be nosy, to ask impertinent questions, to shout out things at presidents Mm -hmm. that you would never do on your own. Mm -hmm. Like a journalist, by their very nature, the ones I know, they hate walking into a crowded room once it's filled. They hate it. They don't want to be noticed like that. And so I think for me, it was more nurture where my mom encouraged us to have discussions. Like we didn't have a lot of books in our house, but if my mom said something, we'd go like, why? And it was okay. She would answer the question as opposed to my father, when you when he would say something and you would question it, he would say, don't dispute my word. And that's it. Okay. And so my mom was a much more nurturing, let's talk about it. Let's think things through. You know, you can ask me anything and I'll explain it. You can ask another question. I'll explain it more. And I think I I felt comfortable doing that because she helped me feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'll bring this full circle. You've talked about this theme throughout our time together, about the influence of your mom, about the the women leaders that you've worked with, about Mm -hmm. what you've learned from your daughters and your awesome wife, Nina. And I am curious about just these roles of these women as leaders in your life. How has that influenced your views on fatherhood, relationships, and your own and your own leadership? You know, uh, it's, it's taught me to be more patient. It's taught me to to listen. Well, I have to tell you a really quick story. Please do. So my my daughters, uh, we we had them in Chinese immersion language programs since they were in pre K, so they're fully fluent in Chinese. And um, when they were about seven or eight, we we had an exchange program where two Chinese boys came to live with us. And it was clear that they just, they just, they couldn't believe these two little chatterbox girls. And at one point I just had to turn to these boys and said, we're not in China anymore. You know, here we listen to girls, right? What, and they get a chance to speak up. So you're going to have to get used to this, okay? Because he kept looking at me like, why are you listening to them? <laughs> it's like, because <laughs> that's what we they do here. They got something to say. They got something to say. And so uh, I've always felt um, 
you know, and, and, and growing up with sisters and having daughters that it's really important to uh, support them, give them voice, give them agency, treat them with respect and learn from them. And so I tell you, I think that my management style has been heavily influenced by women, you know, in ways that working with uh, guys, I just feel like if that had been most of what my early formative years, I don't think I'd be as good a listener. I don't think I would be as inclusive as I am in terms of getting other perspectives and learning how to draw things out from people, like not assuming that everybody is the same, that everybody has different things. And you got to really invest time to Mm -hmm. sort of learn what motivates them, how they express themselves, and then get the best out of them by, by, you know, appealing to whatever it is that makes them who they are. That's great. All right. Well, you've made it to the lightning round. Uh-oh. Uh, you see, final four question, okay. Piercer. Okay. All right, Greg, what is your favorite Colorado hobby? Golf. No doubt. All right. No doubt. Favorite Colorado landmark? I thought about that one for okay. a minute, but I have to say Red Rocks Amphitheater. Oh, it's gorgeous. And it's not that far from my house, so I love it. I hate climbing it, but once I'm there, I love it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> What action hero do you most identify with? Rocky Balboa. Oh, okay. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, partly because I was a boxer when I was young. Oh, great. But also, I just love his determination, right? That no matter what people say, you know, he presses on and doesn't win every round. But in the end, he's triumphant. Trying is almost as good as winning. Mm Mm-hmm. And then final, and I can't wait to hear the answer to this one. Um, What are you currently binging? As someone who reads a ton, watches a ton of things, I know we've talked about this over the years. Is there a a show or a book or a podcast that you're consuming right now that that, uh, you'd share? So I just got to do two things. Please. So, okay. So the show that I have binged is Snowfall which is about, it's a former, it's a a show that was done by John Singleton, who did Boys in the Hood. Mm -hmm. And it's about the um, crack epidemic in LA back in the 80s. And it's really good. It's it's really, really good. It's five years and and it's just fantastic. In terms of books, I'm reading a book right now called Trial by a guy named Richard North Patterson. You know, he's really, really good. He's almost as prolific as, as James Patterson. And then right after that, which I hope to finish in the next uh, day, I'm going to sit down and read this biography of Sitting Bull. Mm. I've been fascinated by Native American history of late and, and trying to really understand who some of these great figures were. And Sitting Bull is one of the more interesting ones. And there have been some really great, some really great biographies. So I'm reading The Life and Times of Sitting Bull. Great. Well, since since I'm doing the interviewing, I I get a bonus question okay. that you you pass the lightning round. But this is a the a question that I think that people won't want to hear about your advice, and that is, and I know I've asked you this personally before. There's so much data, and so much information that you can get. How do you recommend that people get objective information? that isn't just in some echo chamber based upon clicks and social media or whatever right. they're seeing it just as someone who who's shared that as a in your role in in the newspaper world and journalism but also a consumer yourself mm-hmm. you know it's a great question katie i think it comes down to trust right and so mm-hmm. for me i've explained it this way 
I basically uh, start with trusted sources of information that I've gone to over and over and over and over again. They've proven to be reliable. Some of them are really noted brands like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. And I add maybe a half dozen other things in there, including new, more recent digital things like Vox and, you know, things of that nature that I like. I love political. And then secondly, there are some trusted individuals, good friends, columnists, things of that nature. And I really, I really appreciate their reading habits and, and the kinds of things they share with me. They turn out to be reliable. They expand my universe. I give them credibility. I also have rules. Like if something is too good to be true, check it out. Like I, go check it out. Go find out what the original source is. Most times you'll find out that that is a piece of propaganda. It's not really documented. And once I find a publication that spreads that kind of stuff, I take it off my list. Hmm. And then the final thing is I never uh, pass anything on to anyone unless I've read the entire thing from beginning to end. I never forward anything unless I've read it. Uh, and that's allowed me to be more discerning and not be a conduit for passing on misinformation or disinformation. You know, it's not foolproof, but it tends to work for me. Wow. Words to live by. So thank you for that okay. sprinkle of extra wisdom. <laughs> appreciate that. Thanks for being with us today, Greg. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85 plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.